Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David. My uh, the pool at my in my uh, community complex is reopened, so it's a little bit cold still because they don't heat it uh, over the summer, which is good. It doesn't need it. Uh, a little bit cold, but I didn't get the wetsuit out. Um, I didn't need that, but it's nice to to have that facility back. I've missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to get a return to some sort of normalcy, especially if that normalcy entails physical activity. I think that absolutely. Uh, People have been wasting away in their homes. You know, I'm, I know that the sales of weights went through the roof when the pandemic hit because I'm one of the people who tried to buy them. But I wonder, there's just something about going to a space to exercise that is very important, I think. It's whatever your routine has been, I think, you know, re- getting past the the barriers, the 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 reasons not to, you know, I mean, we always sort of, a couple of the people in my community are are professional athletes or trainers. And, you know, they always remind me that, you know, (laughs) it isn't any easier for them. You know, they, they have to get the discipline happening and it, it is even harder because, you know, that's kind of where their livelihood depends. And it, uh, it takes that sort of real determination. So anything that can reinforce routines as opposed to, you know, challenging them. Uh, and I think people are, are very grateful for kind of a, a little bit of a return to, uh, you know, some sort of manageable program. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we get into the show, I would like to do my weekly call to action. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please do share this as far and wide as you possibly can. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, reviews on iTunes, sharing with close friends, having a listening party while you garden, whatever you choose to do. But uh, we've been having a lot of success with that. So we definitely appreciate your efforts in that regard. Uh, If you do have any questions or comments, in fact, Chris and I have a pretty amazing comment that we're going to be discussing right after this call to action. But if you have any of those, please do send them to thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, other than that, Chris, you have anything you want to add? No, just to reinforce that idea of, of feedback uh, from people, which is really appreciated. It it, uh, it continues and advances the discussion and our investigations. It uh, it builds community. I uh, yesterday morning uh, appeared at the. National Council of Teachers of English Convention, which is a very big event normally. About 20,000 people show up live. This was just all virtual, of course. Um, And uh, it was very pleasing to do an early Saturday morning session. And, of course, people are, you know, chiming in from everywhere for this year. Um, But to get some really good feedback and some very interesting questions. So I think that we all need to remember that our questions really matter, that that. If it's worth, you know, if we feel the people we're addressing are, are worth the time and the energy, uh, it, it matters, you know, it really does. And it, it, it opens new windows of thought, which is kind of the purpose of, of the whole deal. So thank you. Indeed. Indeed. On that note, I would like to open this episode with listener mail. And I'd like for this to be a recurring segment. So again, please do send in as much feedback as you'd like. And Chris and I will go through and select the ones that we want to address directly, because I think the conversational aspect of this is really cool. Uh, Chris and I don't do a whole ton of research for the show, but we do have sort of general ideas of what we're going to talk about. And I think that these are great centering devices for conversation and great callbacks to earlier episodes as well. So I really like the um, community aspect of doing that. So We have a listener mail all the way from New Zealand, and this listener is uh, responding directly to our Sacred Mechanics episode, which if you'll remember, during Sacred Mechanics, we talked uh, specifically about tribal initiation rites and um, uh, some of the the lack of initiation rites that Western culture uh, does, does currently not have. Would you say that's an accurate summation of that episode? It's a big episode. Yeah, big yeah. Episodes. It was. It was a way. It was part of our program of of trying to get a better insight into our culture, uh, Western society, by looking at some other very different types of cultures around the world. And in that episode, we looked very closely at uh, New Guinea, 
and in particular the Sepik River uh, initiation rites for young males, which involves a very painful process of scarification. So it's much more intense than tattoos. But the idea is that um, with very sharp stones uh, on the back and shoulders, the young men are um, scarred in such a way as to resemble crocodiles, which is kind of the totem animal around there, um, totem reptile. And they're, uh, they're very, very uh, prolific, the crocodiles. There's no, uh, <laughs> there's no great surprise why that's one of the magical creatures mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. is summoned forth in these human ceremonies. Right, right. So in that episode, you bring up uh, um, McDowell, Christina McDowell. Is that Christina Dodwell? Yes, Christina Dodwell. Dodwell. Yeah, a British explorer adventurer. Christina Dodwell. Okay, excellent. And in that, you are speaking to the fact that she participated as a female in a primarily male ceremony. And the question that we were asking there is: Is it proper or is it correct for uh, somebody to participate in something like that um, while kind of using a westernized sort of uh, feminist idea of breaking down barriers and going sort of where no woman has gone before. Is that is that also fair? I want to make sure yeah, I have this right well before said. I get started. No, I think okay. that's, that's well positioned. Okay. Well, this listener in a very kind uh, way is, is pushing back on that in a very interesting manner, I think. So I'll read this passage and then there's one other passage that I want to get to. It's a, it's a very in-depth email, but I thought that these were the selections, okay? So in the episode, you give an example of having an opportunity in Vanuatu to participate in a, in a ceremony, not the, obviously not the scarification ceremony, but something along the same lines, an initiation ceremony for, for males. Right. And you, and you declined uh, because you said, you know, this just isn't my thing, right? It's not my, not my place, essentially. So Correct. The, the, the listener begins... The difference in the stories Chris tells about the tribes allowing or disallowing participation in tribal rites and initiations seems to me to be with the people themselves. In Papua New Guinea, they allowed the female explorer to be part of their initiation. In Vanuatu, they asked Chris not to be in their kava ceremony. Simple. We listen. We respect the boundaries that are set. The genderedness of the female explorer seems trans to me in terms of cultural tribal roles. She is not tending to the home fires. She is out there, solo, finding new-to-her territories to discover. Perhaps the men of the tribe recognize something that is less visible to you slash us, that she is not a woman in the same sense as the women in their living group. This is because the role she has taken, and that therefore the relevance of the male ritual is to her way of being in the world, rather than her physical body. I think also of the waves of transgender initiations that are going on currently in our own culture. Agreed we are a culture lost, but also in the swirling cycles of the evolution of humanity, I understand that most of us now are most certainly post-tribal, and that I am personally enriched for the lack of definition in many of these roles. It's a paradox. Because I'm saddened that I don't have a culture of midwifery around me, but I'm grateful that I don't only do women's work. So she's saying some very interesting things here, and I kind of wanted to get your take on this response. Well, I thought it was a phenomenally thoughtful uh, response with a lot of substance to it. And I I really, I I, I completely... um, Agree to some extent. I, I think that the trans element, the the the, ver, the the word form that that took for me is in in the case of Christina Dodwell is is sort of transgressive. Uh, she's coming in from another point of view uh, relative to uh, the Sepik River people, which I think is exactly what the situation was. So it is a very uh, special situation, and I think that. Um, our listeners' angle on that is 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 very well and very subtly phrased. So I, I do think there's um, a very valid point of view there. Uh, the other thing is, and I did try to um, in the original episode. You know, Dodwell was uh, a young woman at the time. This was at the start of her career, and uh, she didn't phrase herself ever as an anthropologist uh, in the sense of some a special duty of care to the people that she, you know, she was traveling 
and looking after herself in a, in a solo survival sort of mode. So there is some slack, I think, that can be cut there. Um, I very much like the idea that's mentioned of the paradox of the longing for some of the cultural structure, uh, but resisting cultural rigidity and enjoying uh, the cultural flexibility we have today. And I honestly think that's a takeoff point for um, an episode unto itself, really, because I think we're all in that same boat in some ways, that we we are enjoying the freedoms that some relaxed social mores and conventions allow us. But on the other hand, I think people resonated with our idea of the lack of initiation rights, the lack of, of structured milestones uh, in our in our lives. And um, I mean, I know a lot of people my age, and I, and I certainly feel this way, of we kind of got to this point and we're thinking, this doesn't have anywhere near the level of structure that, that we seem to, you know, intuit in our parents' lives, you know, <laughs> and I don't think we're imagining that. I, I really don't. I think there's there's plain and simply less structure, and some of that is good, as our listener points out, and some of it we we kind of have a little, I don't know, a feeling of melancholy, a feeling of loss and disorientation. So I think there was some really good. Um, points of view uh, put forward in that that note to us and, and we really appreciate that level of thinking um, because there are no cut and dry uh, answers and in in the case of my situation you know I declined that one uh, ceremonial opportunity but uh, not always not others and I might have done something very differently you know in a different situation so they're just with this level of complexity, there's just no simple, rigid solution that's going to always hold good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's worth looking at it from the different angles. I am interested by what I believe she's saying here, which is kind of that if the if the tribe itself experiences or expresses its agency by allowing... Uh, Dodwell to participate in this ritual that in and of itself speaks to a kind of thing that they're that they're seeing in her that other people can't see. I wonder about that. I do. You know, I'm a big fan of looking at the agency of um, people. We talked about that very specifically on our last episode pertaining to homeless people. Uh, I also do wonder, however, if you know, as we said in the homeless episode, right? Agency doesn't. Uh, sort of precludes you from sort of making mistakes or or doing something sort of incorrect, even within your own structure. Oh, absolutely. And I think that dynamic is very, very active in, in the Dodwell story. She devotes quite a, a, a good section of the book to it. It was obviously an important sort of experience. And if you're familiar with the writing style in that book, you're also would be aware that there, there are some important things that she's not saying for whatever reason. And, and I don't have any more light to shed on that, but it, it's quite apparent that it's a very edited uh, life experience sort of narrative. Um, it's, it's not the kind of thing where we're getting, you know, every dot connected at all. And I think that it's great and absolutely essential, not just great, it's essential to uh, be thinking in terms of the agency of everyone that we know and meet, but certainly um, to not deny that in the, you know, in the context of indigenous people in remote situations. But nonetheless, I mean, she's traveling with a British passport. Uh, she is white. She's a female. Uh, there are some leverage points there that she was using um, you know, that I think, uh, also needed to be considered in that, mm -hmm. in that story, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all that is to say, um, please do keep sending us your thoughts. Uh, this was a great addition to the sacred mechanics episode. Um, if I thought it would do any good, I would actually go back and add that on to the end of it. But of course, you know, for those of you who've been listening since the beginning, uh, you would you would miss that. So we're just going to address these things in the episodes as they come along. Uh, keep we're going to keep having this evolving conversation. But on that note, 
we're going to have a little bit of a different conversation today. Uh, so what are we going to talk about, Chris? Uh, we're going to try to uh, round off our, our meditation, discussion, analysis, interrogation of the five great Western notions of progress. We've talked about the mythic religious uh, aspect, which sort of underlies all of them. That, that's been one of our sort of uh, theses along the way. And I, I think we've kind of demonstrated uh, why that is, is a fair argument to make. The second was the biological level of progress, namely through the theory of evolution. Technological progress, which is often what people think of first, and we've referred to Edward T. Hall, the anthropologist's notion of extensions, human extensions being our technological innovations and also our systems, our institutions, things that, that work is in what Freud called a prosthetic sense. They extend human capability. And Hall's view, and, and many other people believe, that our extensions have kind of taken on as a curious life of their own, or at least an evolutionary stream that seems to run independent and to some extent parallel, but also in conflict with the biological uh, patterns of evolution. And this is one of the reasons why we have this red queen hysteria of, of trying to keep pace with, with modern society. You know, everyone's talking about the you know, time shortage and how out of breath we all are and how much information overload there is. All of these sort of pressures of essentially a technological capitalistic uh, evolutionary stream that's running on its own. And then we looked at the cultural revolution, uh, big cultural revolutions, which I think we made some interesting sort of ground on that. Um, and I, I came across a, a, a line from, uh, he's actually an artist that I really admire, the great Robert Irwin, who's still alive with us in his 90s now, the installation artist who's... Um, featured in Lawrence Weschler's absolutely gorgeous book, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. I think Lawrence Weschler is one of our finest uh, nonfiction writers. and I Such incredibly clear prose. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I just, just had to throw gorgeous. that in there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really referring to him strongly in my uh, textbook for Rutledge Press because I'm just – he's his writing has meant a great deal to me and my students have always responded to it. But Erwin says at one point, and of course he's not just thinking about art here, he's thinking about revolutions in the bigger sense that we, we talked about. But he says very simply, even revolutions don't cause change. Change causes revolution. And David, I think that kind of is was uh, uh, a good gloss on your position on the cultural revolution side, which we covered last time in preparation for looking downscale at the social progress idea. Yes, yes. Do you think that's a fair summation of your point of view on cultural revolutions? Oh, absolutely. I think that yeah. they, yeah, they I necessarily, so yeah. And I would, I would specify that very, like in, on our times, I would very much emphasize that it's cult, that it's, I'm sorry, that it is technological change that spurs cultural and social revolution. Right. Which in, 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 in the sciences, you know, they talk about tool-based revolutions, which we're in now with digital technology versus conceptual uh, right. idea-based revolutions. And I, I think that was an, an interesting point to come out of kind of, because cultural revolutions, we're talking about the French, the American Revolution, China, Russia, you know, they're very big, murky, violent, uh, mass events by definition, which are very difficult to get any kind of fair aerial view of. Mm -hmm. I think no matter who's writing the history, I think they're just complicated. They are. And it, it's, I think, serves a good uh, intellectual clarity purpose to think about them as responses to, as symptoms and effects of causes, not only as great causes themselves. And oftentimes I think it's better maybe just to think of them as effects. And uh, that that's kind of what the Irwin quotation gets to, I think. So mm -hmm. um, that was kind of a, a starting point. And I guess we're really now trying to get to not only a little bit more of, of the present tense uh, 
sense of, of how tense things are with, mm-hmm. with social progress and uh, the idea of progressivism, but also to, to try to put that into a larger historical framework because there's surely nothing in American history that is more prominent than the idea of, of progressivism and social reform. Mm-hmm. I mean, many people have claimed that, um, and I think we'll, we'll sort of filter uh, back through that. And I have a few things to, uh, certainly a few things to say about that. But I think that, um, do you want to start us off with, with getting sort of focused on the idea of, of social progress, that sure. myth? Yeah, I would like to get started on that. And I think that it's a good idea to segue from the cultural to the social. Um, I think that that kind of makes sense in this continuum that we're talking about. And I would like to start with an article that you wrote in 2012 for The Rumpus, the online magazine. Uh, And it's called Lost in Time and Out of Season, Growing Up in 1960s Berkeley. Could you set the, the stage for this uh, for this article, what were you trying to do with it? What's its major thesis? And then I'll come in with this uh, big old banger of a quote that I got here. Okay, cool. Well, the main title, Lost in Time and Out of Season, is a line from a Doors song. Uh, so I hear Jim Morrison's voice in that. One of the, the great poets of that period, uh, whether or not you think he's great, he was considered great within that frame, and he was certainly a master sloganeer of the era. But um, growing up in, in, in the heart of the counterculture, so to speak, you know, the, I was exposed as a very young child to, to some of the traumatic sides of it. The National Guard, tear gas, demonstrations, the Black Panthers, the Hells Angels, and the huge impact at street level of the drug culture. And I was very, very young. And I I had grown up sort of hearing from people 10, 12 years older, a kind of very rose-colored glasses look at this, you know, because they were older, they could, you know, they were participating in the marches. They felt, you know, that was something they were doing in their formative uh, late teen, young adult phase. And I get why that was important. But for me, I saw a real kind of nightmare unfolding. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly lived through the aftermath of, of the drug phase when it really percolated down to people my age. And um, there were a lot of real you know, horror stories that, that came out of that. So I I'm, was not... Uh, predisposed to just say this was a great, great thing. I mean, I think the counterculture at its best still failed in many ways. I think it was uh, subsumed by commercialism, for one thing. But I think in the heart of the moment, in the thick of those conflicts, you know, coming out of the free speech movement on the Cal Berkeley campus, uh, I was really too young to sort of see, but I I heard about the the aftershocks. And I'm always of the view that anything that scares kids and dogs, I have some doubts about, you know? <laughs> I, um, I don't trust anybody who my dog growls at. It's just see? a thing. It's just it, a it, thing. It, it, you know, I, I think, and once you're down with that idea, nothing will change you. So those were the kinds of thoughts that I had in my mind writing that article. I was really uh, writing to a couple of uh really established uh, cultural historians and, and writers and academics who I've known for years who were in that generation ahead of me, you know, mm-hmm. um, they were teenagers when I was, you know, a kid and their view, I really felt that needed to be challenged in some way. So that's kind of the setup. Okay. How old are you around this time? Oh, like five to seven, you know, five to seven. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, here is this maybe quote. ten, depending on how long you extend it. But okay. I, I feel like I kind of come to you know some sort of independence, you know, sort of in the mid to late seventies. Okay. So I'd missed. I really missed the action by ten years in that sense. Gotcha. Okay. So this is Chris writing. I've since spoken with many older white people who rhapsodize in achingly fond terms about that golden time of change and rebellion. 
I've always marveled at their lack of awareness of how frightening and demented that era and its denizens seemed to children of the day. I remember a sense of pure horror and revulsion in certain scenes. Telegraph Avenue turning into a street of gibbering hobos, muttering panhandlers, tear gas, clashes with the police. The world on fire, as Jim Morrison said. The romance of that moment in the past has always struck me as a travesty, only rivaled by the, idi the idiocy and piggery of the forces of authority the best of those people felt locked in conflict with. From ideology to savage beatings with batons to the making of bombs. Colorful and energized, yes, but it was also an ugly lost time in truth. And the crisis was only further dramatized by the obscene contrast on other levels. The endless ooze of bubblegum music. The, the relentless onslaught of television advertising and brilliantly colored plastic toys. The forced injections of fast food, games, and entertainment to not just dull but to outright obliterate the mind. All while some of the most heinous crimes in American history were being perpetrated by respected leaders, pool halls were being boarded up, donut carts loaded up on trucks and taken to the dump, where the seagulls roosted and huge brown rats festered and nibbled, not to mention characters out of a John Dillinger, Neil Cassidy phantom hinterland, like Charles Manson, rolling into town to play guitar on the streets for spare change and the chance to seduce some rich white girl who hated her father for being rich and white. On a dime, the world had morphed and then was begged for by some displaced Pennsylvanian ex-Lutheran who'd blown his mind on drugs he couldn't even pronounce, looking for the kingdom of heaven in a trash can and pissing in his pants without knowing. Paints a little bit of a picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for reading that, David. I, I haven't sort of revisited that in a long time, but you can see, I think, that, that it, it affected me very deeply. And um, I really did have a kind of pent-up sense that, that that era and all that it means uh, has been misrepresented in many ways. And, and I kind of feel that this... Uh, although I wrote this, you know, back in 2012, I think it, um, it it does speak to some of the issues today. And I I have had, you know, many of my students in, in you know, eager uh, and open-handed, open-hearted, you know, questionings ask me, you know, how does today's woke culture uh, compare to the counterculture? And so I kind of do go back in my mind to, to that particular uh, essay, you know? Yeah. And so the thing that you point out the most, I think, is the, is the ugliness of humanity in general. Now, we're not a nihilistic podcast, and I'm not suggesting that people are all ugly all the time, but people are people, you know? They have uh, bodies that do things like sweat and excrete, and they have minds that do things like like plot and get greedy, you know, that commit crimes. And I think anytime you're in the midst of a social revolution uh, or a social change, a social, a, a social shift, I think that those base elements of humanity get transmuted onto whatever the ideology of the day is. So today you mentioned, you know, sort of woke culture, right? Well, there's nothing really wrong with, I guess, wokeness on its surface, if what we're talking about is a simple recognition of, you know, social mores and, and being polite, being manners, being mannered rather. I've always thought that it was perfectly fine to treat people with respect and, you know, not to use an Oklahomaism, you know, show your ass to people. You've, you've right. heard that one, right? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but of course, you know, my theory is that human beings at their worst are motivated by power first, and then a subset of that is money, right? It usually starts with money, and then once they have enough of the money, it moves on to things like power. The thing is, is that when you have a group of people who have no intention or belief that they could ever make the kind of money to get them to power, they start to look for power in ways that are available to them. So these ideological beliefs, these social changes, these kind of shifting relationships between people uh, become the sites of pretty nasty, ugly power struggles. And then that gets exacerbated ever further by an ever-present phantom technocratic, techno-capitalist 
uh, class that really wants to both maintain control and sell things to people. So that's my that's my opening spiel about how I feel about social change. But um, yeah, I'd be curious to get some of your impressions, a la this article that you wrote about the '60s about today. Well, I think there are a couple of of dynamics that were in play then. Of course, I wasn't aware of that at, at the time exactly. I certainly wasn't able to articulate it. But I think that that they repeat and inform our situation today. And and one of the ways I, I can I think about it is. Um, in very physical, simple terms, the difference between velocity and speed. Mm-hmm. I think that many people would think those terms are synonymous, and they are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, velocity involves the concept of direction, and mm-hmm. speed doesn't. So they are very different in, in physical terms. If you speak to you know people who are in engineering, they will understand that immediately. And it's an example of you know when we in, import metaphors and analogies from technical frames, we sometimes miss what their real point is. But I think that the idea is that we often value speed as an energy, as in sort of almost chaos for its own sake. We think, well, that's vibrant and dynamic and and it's better than, you know, standing still. Remember how last time we were talking about the one of the core problems with progress just on the very personal level is, you know, is your life going forward or you're not going backward, are you? Or mm-hmm. are you just standing there doing nothing? You know, so we've got a kind of rhetorical slant. We said from the very beginning, progress has a deep rhetoric built into it, which is uh, very suspicious and something we should always be questioning. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that's point number one. The other th- thing which I think is really interesting, which um, one of my uh, linguistics friends uh, just pointed out, and uh, when we talked about nostalgia, you know, he said that, you know, that's very interesting. It's related to euphemism. And he said that euphemism is actually a link between nostalgia conservatism of the past, I don't mean political conservatism, but progressivism, the need for change, the belief in innovation, the moral high ground of reform. And I think that's a very interesting bridge between those two of euphemism, because both worldviews are kind of in denial about some of the the key aspects and consequences of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, their approach. And I think that that is very much the idea of trying to avoid consequences. Um, I mean, when I think of my hometown of Berkeley, which is still, I think, considered, you know, the leftist capital of America, or certainly one of them, uh, it's it's an epicenter. It really is. It's, it's a woke culture epicenter. Well, I frankly don't feel they're living up to that in terms of, of quality of life and results on the street. Um, I think the old saying that the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, my view is Berkeley is definitely paved with good intentions. I'm not sure that's um, the justification for outlawing the word manhole, for instance, gender neutralizing that. If that's an expression of progressive thinking, I think the bar is set a little low, frankly, Um I mean, I, I think that uh, there are some more important issues we could be looking at in terms of, of the technological e- equity that we spoke of last time, real estate equity, um, the ability to, for people of color to leverage uh, reasonable bank financing, not predatory bank financing, as in the subprime crisis. There seem to be a lot of substantive issues that my concern that's my concern about the woke culture idea i feel it seizes a rhetorical high ground uh as a claim as an assertion certainly not a confession it's an assertion with a vested interest of of virtue and social prestige and then oftentimes we either don't look hard enough at the delivery on that promise or we don't look to accountability for the results the consequences Right. And I think that when you talk about there being more important things to focus on, a common response to that that I've heard is that, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, to which I often think to myself, no, you clearly cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. 
there's not uh, enough space in a person's mind to take into account all of these trivialities. Um, the conspiratorial part of my brain obviously believes that these trivialities are there on purpose, right? That they're manufactured in a lab. I believe astroturfed is the word for it to, you know, <laughs> be, be pushed up against the idea of grassroots, right? Um, right. <laughs> this whole thing, if there's this massive disinfo, you know, some kind of uh, um, dripping, oozing, Cthulhu-like creature in a basement somewhere sending out these, you know, these missives about like, this is how we distract the people from, from the real thing. And I think that the, the major issue, you know, you mentioned things like housing equity. Um, the answers to some of those problems are necessarily going to bump up against other tenets of woke ideology, right? Particularly things like immigration and the ability of foreign investors to, uh, to buy U.S. real estate, right? To invest in it. To you know, if you walk in downtown Manhattan, for example, a lot of those buildings are completely empty because they've been yeah. brought up by you know Saudi sheiks and you know Russian oligarchs and people like that. Um, and the but the answer to that, this kind of uh, sort of conservative, uh, nation focused, uh, sort of populist, like pushing out of these these particular immigrants and saying, you know, for example that only U.S. citizens are allowed to buy property in the U.S., that's necessarily going to bump up against this kind of, this kind of ideology that's always looking for, uh, that's always looking for you to be, I guess, unwoke in a way. I can't think of a better word for it than that. Hmm. Say more about that. Hmm. I think that the problem that you're speaking to namely that there are real problems that have to be solved. I think that they quite often get cut off at the knees because uh, we live in a world, unfortunately, where every decision has a downside and somebody's going to be uh, left with a little bit less than what they had before, or sometimes in some cases left with nothing at all. And so the issue becomes that if your job is to sort of stagnate a movement to keep it from getting to a place where any real actionable change could be made, you can find who is going to be left out and then focus very specifically on uh, that group's uh, ethnicity, sexuality, things like that. Frame it as, you know, hyphen, phobic, whatever. And then everybody kind of gets derailed. You know what I mean? So you take something that's a good thing, which is making sure that people are not discriminated against based on color of their skin, sexuality, gender, um, all that kind of stuff, and you begin using it to where you run into a stalemate around every corner. Does that make more sense? Where, you know, it's it's kind of this thing that keeps being able to eat itself. Right. Well, I think the one way to, to think of this is that uh, you know, the presentation of every progressive reform moment, I'm using the word moment, not just movement, is that it always presents itself in American history, as far as I know, and I've done a lot of, of research into the whole utopian community reform idea. It always presents itself as this, you know, nothing in this tradition has ever happened before, as if it's always completely new. Right, right. But, I mean, America is just, you know, we have... Going back to Jemima Wilkinson, you know, the public universal friend, uh, a very interesting character who presented herself as sort of a genderless evangelist after a kind of uh, psychological sort of trauma, a physical trauma too, kind of a, an interesting example of reinvention. And we've got a lot of these, you know, we have uh, the Oneida community in, in New York State and on and on and on. And there's oftentimes a sense of cult religion. We talked earlier about, you know, the idea of cults uh, and how that's a rhetorical derogatory term for, you know, anyone else's uh, spiritual uh, communal ceremonial practices that you don't like. Well, you can just label that as a cult. But yet there have been a lot of cults, you know, and I think that we could look at, say, Scientology as, as a, you know, as an example of that. I think a lot of people would accept that term applied to them. Um, but the, the progressive movement has traditionally 
had some very cult-like qualities to it. And I think that we need to be accepting of that and to not just sort of shy away from that because as, as we've acknowledged, cult can be used as just a, a, you know, a label to uh, a negative rhetorical label in that sense. But I wonder, it's, to me, the problem is not so much a question of not acknowledging a tradition of uh, secular and also linear reform or, or pendulum swinging reform, where today's big progressive idea becomes tomorrow's need for reform. I mean, we see that clearly in American history, particularly. I wonder if we could look at a couple of examples. And mm-hmm. a big one that comes to my mind is prohibition. You know? Oh, yeah, good one. I mean, here we have a major progressive gesture on a nationwide scale. We had not seen anything on that level uh, up to that point in terms of mass social control. And let's be honest, there were some things that were, were good about it. It was When it was introduced, it was very strongly linked with the first wave of feminism, women's rights, the right to vote, more protection for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea was to get men and their wages home from the factories and the mines or wherever. Don't lose all that money in bars and public houses. And also to stop domestic abuse within the home. Now, everyone, I think, would agree those are very reasonable sort of goals. And prohibition was was instituted to address them. And in part was very successful. But there were some downsides, as you would say. Uh, many, many ethnic social clubs were vandalized, if not destroyed, because they were in part uh, serving alcohol and social meeting grounds, particularly for men. The, the consequence of that was that communities were disrupted along racial ethnic lines, which I don't think people would say is progressive. Right. Uh, also, these kinds of, of social clubs served as important labor organizing uh, venues. So there's a class element here of, of destabilizing labor organization. And, you know, you think back to the history of women's rights, that was a very important, you know, ally. Uh, and the Democratic Party, you know, would certainly count, used to count uh, the unions as an important uh, constituent element. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some downsides there. And then, of course, we saw the fact that nobody paid attention to prohibition and it established gangster networks that necessitated the founding of the FBI, which mm-hmm. is grows more powerful as a law enforcement agency every year. And I think many people have some doubts about the, the, the value, um, the good value in that. And the other thing that I find very interesting, if you look, if you do a history of sort of the black market in America, you find that many of the supply chain networks and certainly many of the business strategies that were instituted by the gangster contingent during Prohibition, they exist today. Mm-hmm. They exist today, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So that is an example of a major progressive victory that that was in play for a long time. I mean, two amendments were, were involved in that, two amendments to the Constitution, one to institute and one to repeal it. So it got a lot of attention. But I just want to close out my side of, of this discussion by just an article I read uh, on Friday that we are today, okay, so all these years later, all these years later, we are looking at an alarming increase in advanced liver disease in women under the age of 28. Hmm. And I mean, not that we don't have other, you know, alcohol problems across the, you know, I mean, you and I both know that. But my, my point is in terms of an overall arc of progressive results from this great progressive initiative, I just frankly am not seeing it. You know, mm-hmm. 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 yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And I think that when it comes to, you know, the prohibition and also to today, 
I would be very curious whenever I hear that there is a particular progressive movement, I'm very uh, uh, suspicious because I always wonder what is being progressed towards. And that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to articulate. It seems to be very in the moment. It seems like um, this is a thing that we have to do now because it's solving some sort of problem. And then when you ask them to elaborate on that, you tend to run into problems of people accusing you of, you know, of utopian thinking or things like that. So what, what do you think when it comes to something like prohibition was the goal simply, you know, just like you said, keeping the money, uh, in the home or what was it? Was it a moral I know it was moral, right? Um, yes. What, what did the, what was the world that they were moving towards? What did that look like? What were the, what were the goals there? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because I think it actually addresses some of the, the, the you know the so-called downsides that I mentioned. I'm I'm not at all sure that the attacks on ethnic social clubs and therefore ethnic communities was simply a side effect. I, I don't accept that at all. I think that was very much uh, part of the overall goal. So I think there are some dark aspects to the the goal even positioned at its very, uh, you know, the most idealistic uh, that we can. Um, I think there was certainly a, a, a great moral concern about the, the level of alcoholic consumption. And I think there was a kind of desire to uh, take that in hand, certainly mm-hmm. influenced by religious positions. But I think also there was a, a very much an idea here of social control, yeah. At the end of, you know, one of Emerson's most famous essays from the ni- mid-19th century is self-reliance. And I think that with the rise of industrialism, with the, the, the move to urban centers, there became a drive on the part of the whole culture to rein itself in. And the oligarchs of the time certainly wanted control. We were seeing the rise of mass communications which had never been seen before. And those were not only communications vehicles, but media empires and corporate structures wanting more power. And I liken it a little bit to, you know, the fact that we see a strange attitude about the whole mask situation in the COVID period. You know, there are some people I know who just simply seem to like the fact that people are all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's not that there isn't a health reason. I'm not, and I'm not in any way suggesting that there isn't a good reason to to follow protocols of social distancing and masking. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I do know some people personally who seem to enjoy the fact that this is this is an edict that's yes. come down from on high. That's right. And they like falling into place. They seem to feel that a, there is a necessary imposition of conformity. And I think that's, you know, there are some people who go with that and there are some people who just naturally resist that. Yeah. Um, I'm one of them. (laughs) I do wear my mask just for listeners to know, but I, I, I resent the elements of social control and the, the scolding aspect about it. When I was on the Rune Soup podcast, I asked Gordon when I was on there, I said, do you think that people are enjoying elements of this pandemic. And he gave a good, slightly diplomatic answer about that. Um, but the basic idea that I think is is true here is exactly what you said. I think that a lot of social progress uh, movements have a ton to do with social control. And I can tell you why, because in their projected future, them being uh, the purveyors of the kind of social ideas, they're always in a position of power. <clears throat> There's an element of jockeying for position when these new social control elements are are implemented. So the way that I like to put it is, you know how Steinbeck said that America is a nation of you know temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the problem because everybody thinks that riches is, are just around the corner. But it seems to me that people who engage in sort of the loudest shaming online, they they just see themselves as you know, temporarily embarrassed kind of dispensers of noblesse oblige, right? They want to be in this position where they are the ones who 
uh, sort of give alms and, you know, dictate what people are and aren't allowed to do. I see a very insidious type of control <laughs> taking hold right now in the sort of uh, meme world and the, and the sort of earworms of, of social media. Well, you know, it reminds me of a couple of things. I mean, I think William Burroughs was well out in front of this long before, you know, any of these specific things took hold. But this is an interesting quotation from the anthropologist Edward T. Hall, which uh, I think I've, you know, we've talked about, and I think some people would know. I, I really believe he's uh, was a phenomenally interesting thinker. This is from the book Beyond Culture. Our basic theme is that many people's sense of worth is directly related to the number of situations in which they are in control, which means that many people have problems with their self-image because they are clearly in control of so little. And to me, that sums up very neatly almost all of social media. Um, I think it, there really is a, a, a manifestation of a of a mass self-esteem problem, which drives a lot of the memes, which drives a lot of the shaming, which drives really a lot of the tonality, the negative tonality of woke yeah. culture, the right. scolding. I think scolding was a great verb that you used. And it reminds me of, you know, the old days of, of the stocks, you know, of mm -hmm. people on the ducking stool, people getting that kind of, uh, you know, shaming and, and public humiliation treatment, which I, I personally find that just uh, impossible to to see as progressive. You know, mm -hmm. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I consider that the humiliation of people to be a, a, a very extreme form of psychological violence. And it actually just really turns my stomach almost more than, than any physical violence. I've, I've you know, I saw a lot of dead bodies in, in the course of some work that I've done as a, in the hospitals and, you know, various activities. And I, you know, as, as horrifying as, as physical violence can be, to me, nothing is quite like psychological humiliation. It's just, it, it, it's just a stomach churning. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I have a very difficult time seeing what is progressive about any movement that uses that as a technique. Uh, to me, that's off limits. That's where the the means uh, don't justify the end. You know, I agree. And when I was growing up in the early two thousands, when I was in high school, I tell people this all the time. I had a group of friends that was very diverse in terms of race and sexuality, and we were very kind of what we would call un PC with each other back then, and we loved each other very much. You know. Nobody really had any problems with each other. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, the philosopher, talks about this at some length about um, different uh, people on the, the the Serbian and Croatian border sort of bonding over the ethnic jokes that they, you know, that that the different sides had about each other. You know, tell me the worst thing that you've that you've heard about me, and then they all laugh and they actually bond in that way. And that to me held very true for the social relationships that I had in high school. And it's interesting to me because I'm in touch with a lot of the people who I knew in high school. And unfortunately, a lot of them have become very kind of, uh, in a weird way, because we're talking about progressivism, but they become very conservative in sort of what they feel like they're allowed to talk about. So I went to a, a gathering, a friend's birthday party yesterday. And of course, you know, you know me, I'm not the kind of person who's going to go in there and start saying wild things just to be provocative. But we were kind of talking and I was I was making jokes and it felt like people weren't quite sure if they could laugh or not. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, sad. And it was and it was but they were really really just light little jokes, you know. We're not talking, you know, uh, necrophilia jokes or something like that. You know what I mean? It was just stuff that you know, as I was in my car on my way home, I was thinking about the things that I had said. And I'm like, oh, I could see how something that I said there could have been taken in today's terms to be, you know, this type of joke or that type of joke. And of course, you know, didn't mean it that way at all. But at the same time, like that's immediately how they took it. So it felt very guarded. And just from this kind of 
you know, I felt very melancholy all day long thinking about this because I I just remember, you know, playing guitars with my friends and and drinking beers and, you know, and laughing and having a good time. And while I'm making the party seem like it was a total downer, we had a ton of laughs. It was a great time. But there was that sense of of a shift, right? Of people in my orbit progressing towards something uh and me kind of still sitting still to use the language from the last podcast that we did. So I can't help but think that this isn't it in a way, that people have to be free to, you know, make mistakes without fear fear of, you know, social shaming and things like that and and really just kind of interact with people on a human level, warts and all. Um because without it, we're kind of, we're left with uh, feeling like you're at work 24 seven, you know, <laughs> feeling like there's going to be a, you know, a manager in a lot of ways, uh, people who scold and shame online give off this very middle management feel to me, you know, this very HR kind of feel to what are supposed to be regular human interactions. So a bit of a rant, but sorry, go ahead. Well, I'd, I'd go further than that than saying it's a job because I've seen this in now, you know, five, six years of, of university students who I really feel for. I, I think it's much more like a prison, and I think that the managers are much more like the guards and the wardens, you know. I mean, I, I think that this what, what, what we're giving young people in terms of, uh, you know, a social framework is just diabolical, you know, mm-hmm. to be constantly afraid of what you're going to say, to be constantly trying to be, you know, meshing, you know, with what the, uh, the herd values. You know, when I grew up, you know, we, the, the emphasis was on heroes, not herd. Sure, mm-hmm. there, was, there, was, there was peer pressure, there was conformity, but there was a lot less of it. And the consequences of it weren't so permanent for a lot of people. But I have seen you know, many, many students roll out of public high schools, particularly, uh, just completely crushed already by, you know, something they're not even really able to fully articulate. They just know that there's a program and it can change minute to minute and it really frustrates the natural uh, communications with people. And it's worth just another line from, um, from Edward T. Hall. I mean, he's relating this to, uh, to technological advancement in the sense of, of how uh, our extensions have worked. But I think that this is where technological and, and social myths of progress join hands. Humans have advanced at the expense of that part of themselves that has been extended, and as a consequence, end up repressing human nature in its many forms. Man's goal from this point forward should be to rediscover that lost, alienated, natural self. And Mm -hmm. I just see that in so many young people that I've been very deeply involved with. And I just can't see the progressive nature of that. I, I see it being as very psychologically damaging. I, I think that many of the more resilient ones will recover, but I know a lot of them that won't. And mm-hmm. it, it it's very, very confusing for them. And a lot of it just simply has to do with a lot of lines and boundaries and grids and rules and things that aren't clearly defined that emerge out of social media or that's certainly the mechanism for their dispersal. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't. I see that as being entirely disconnected from the idealistic goals of the ideology driving this. You know, mm-hmm. I just I don't see that connection in terms of actual social behavior. Um, but I do, I do think there's one other interesting um, American history story I mentioned. Uh, when we were, you know, sort of pre-gaming about Chester A. Arthur, the twenty-first president, and I just learned this pretty recently myself, and I'll try to recap it pretty quickly. Um, Arthur took over when uh, James Garfield was assassinated, and as happened with the Kennedy assassination, 
uh, Arthur was actually, you know, thought of as possibly being, you know, a beneficiary and therefore involved in some conspiracy. That that turned out to be not true at all. But Garfield had campaigned on one central idea, which was called the Pendleton uh, Civil Service Reform Act. And the idea was to try to take control of the Gilded Age corruption and the idea of to the victor go the spoils. If you get elected to office, you get your friends in to put their snouts in the trough because it was just out of control corruption. And Arthur had actually been groomed by a man named Roscoe Conkling, who was uh, in the Republican Party, so an opponent of of Garfield, and deeply uh, corrupt. Arthur had been groomed as a flunky. He was very eccentric. He was a very large man. He had 80 pairs of handmade expensive trousers, which was very unusual then. He was also single, very, very unusual presidential figure. But Garfield had been instructed to take him on board as the vice president, keep your enemies close, right? And that was the strategy. So when Arthur took over as president on the death of Garfield, uh, and uh, that's a great story, by the way, the uh, Alexander Graham Bell fits in there with the first attempt of a metal detector, which which didn't actually work. But everyone naturally expected that Arthur was going to just flip on the whole thing and be the, the flunky that Roscoe Conkling had groomed him to be. Well, to everyone's enormous surprise, Chester A. Arthur proved to have some of the, most, the highest level of integrity of any presidential figure ever. And he actually followed through on prosecuting and implementing Garfield's Reform Act and stunned everyone. In, in, in the, the presidential historian literature, it's quite remarkable. I, I found it to be a very, very interesting story, and I I'd only learned it a little while ago. And so here Arthur has done what everyone said wouldn't happen, and he's been the honest, good guy, and he's plowed through this Reform Act to clean up the swamp, to drain the swamp of the time. Well, the interesting side effect or downstream influence of that was that, yes, the civil service got reformed, but that brought into play for the first time the kind of corporate lobbying, private corporate lobbying, which is so epidemic today. And I find that a fascinating story in real American history about how a deeply progressive, honest idealistic, but practically implemented, truly progressive gesture still, still had some side effects that were unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting. I think that's important to keep in mind when we're thinking about progressive reform in general, because there are always things downstream from it. I've been beating this drum for the past few episodes, but the idea is, is that there are people in power who find a way, no matter what that way is, to maintain that power and exercise it. And the thing is, is that you don't want to lose your soul on the way, right? So that has to become the most important. Again, this is not conservative in the sense that you want things to remain exactly as they are, nor is it progressive in the sense that you want to boldly move into the future with new reforms and things like that. But it's also not the idea that you want to sit, stand still. You do want to grow as a person, right? You want to be able to sort of come into yourself throughout all of this. So I think that, you know, the idea that a progressive political reform or party or candidate is going to uh, just sort of fix everything from the, from the top down, I think really should be looked at with a lot of skepticism, especially if the cost of that is feeling uncomfortable about things that you say between friends, right? Like, what kind of freedoms are you giving up? I think that's the way to put it. It goes back to, you know, a, a simple sort of paradigm that you introduced, you know, I think almost in our first episode, but I think it's 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 just immensely uh, handy and of great utility is, is the profit and loss idea, the balance sheet. And I, yeah. I think that that is something to all that everyone can get their heads around that idea. And I think that, that what we're saying with any 
uh, suggestion or assertion of progress, whatever the model is, whether it's religious, biological, technological, cultural, social, economic, whatever, that we should start off with a position of dealing with that as a rhetorical assertion that needs some skepticism. And then to take it to the next step and look at, okay, let's say there are some good, truly progressive values in place. Well, what will be the effect of acting on those? Will they, in fact, lead to uh, progressive results? Or will they create the need for more reform into the future? Uh, and, you know, underlying this, I was thinking about kind of a way to give a, a, a sort of sense of closure and focus to this. I thought of Oedipus Rex, the Oedipus story, and the riddle of the Sphinx, mm -hmm. which I think some people might remember. What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs come sunset in the evening? And, of course, the answer is oh, man. humans. Yeah. You know, we start off as babies, we become adults, and then we end up needing a cane as we get older. And I think that, that when we think about the various myths of progress – and even how that idea would just begin to form in human cultures around the world, it surely is in response to the inescapable problem of, of the progress of, of human life mm -hmm. from birth to death. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a desire to break that pattern somehow. You know, we're happy with the birth part. <laughs> you know, everyone, mm -hmm. this is why all these every progressive movement is kind of new unto itself and doesn't really, you know, only acknowledges a historic tradition when it wants to. Uh, but we're not so happy about where the thing goes. You know, mm -hmm. we don't like that three-legged phase. And then, of course, what's after that is, well, not walking at all. And mm -hmm. so that, I think, is the mythic, religious, and deep, inescapable fact of life. That, that really underlies our fantasies of progress. So if I could introduce that idea from myths of progress to fantasies of progress.